and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and today I have a fairly unusual uh, show for you in that we're not going to talk about a technology announcement, event, or product, but we're going to talk about technology in terms of the human beings who make it possible, specifically women in technology. And I feel like for the parallel audience, there's some crossover because obviously a lot of folks with disabilities and who are users of accessibility technology are women, as are the people who create that sort of technology. My guest is Dr. Leslie Shannon. Hello, Dr. Shannon. Welcome. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to talk about these issues. And I'm actually very interested in diversity and inclusion and uh, topics like universal design. So I think this will be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So your organization is the West Coast Women in Engineering, Science and Technology. And I want to find out about that group. But first, let's let's have a little bit of background about yourself. Tell me tell me what you do. And you're you uh, wear multiple hats, as I understand it. So, so tell me a bit about yourself. Yes. So I'm a professor at Simon Fraser University in the School of Engineering Science my background is computer engineering, and I'm actually chair of our computer engineering option. So that's about 60% of my job. And then 40% of my job is tied to the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, or NSERC, created a program called Chairs for Women in Science and Engineering about a little over 25 years ago. And uh, there are five of us regionally, and I'm the BC UConn chair. So if you Think about what kind of acronym that would be. You can understand it really doesn't fit on the single line of a business card. <laughs> so we decided to go for better marketing and hence uh, rebranded ourselves as West Coast Women in Engineering, Science and Technology. Um, the program is basically interested from cradle to coffin to inspiring, encouraging and supporting girls, women, and other underrepresented groups in the science, technology, engineering, and math fields or STEM fields. That's, that's, the, that's the simplest, the simplest, simplest version of what we try and do. Um, I would also add that it, and to me, it's interesting that my interest in terms of computer engineering research is I am interested in heterogeneous systems. So I, I'm not interested in trying to design the next laptop, but I am interested in how diverse computing resources can be used together to create better performance and efficiency for applications and potentially, hopefully, reduce energy consumption. So it turns out diversity is actually good for computing as well as for the design of our world. So your organization, and you, you've, you've said it already, but it's not focused specifically on the college students that you work with. You're talking about empowering women and girls throughout the life cycle of their involvement with technology. So, so how does that manifest itself? What kind of programs do you, do you have? Quite a few different things. And the one thing I will say for the program that NSER created is that they give us scope and capacity to not just look at and create research on these things, but to actually create practical solutions, which for a lot of programs that are maybe similar to this, they really only deal with the research side, not the practicality. So we're, we're very fortunate that we're funded to work this way. So for example, um, we've been working on a set of inclusive apps aimed at young kids. Uh, the first one that's out, and uh, we're actually putting it not just on GitHub for people to download, but also on Amazon, so uh, organizations can use it uh, from the cloud, is called Toon Twister, and its objective is to help kids see the, the computing side behind audio processing, because as a computer engineer, probably 70, 75% of our job is audio, image, or video processing. And now I guess machine learning is also making its way into that, that grouping. And so helping people realize that audio, image, and video processing are actually very inclusive. I mean, everybody likes music. We just like different music. Everybody likes pictures. We just like different pictures. Same can be said for movies. And... So this 
app lets you pull in a piece of music you're interested in and then apply a bunch of different filters to just sort of see how you can change the music. And it can be used uh, in an outreach program, can be used in a classroom if you want to talk about the math behind music or the math behind computing or whatever. So lots of different angles there. That's probably an activity that would resonate a lot with your um, listeners. Another thing that we've done that is possibly on the weirder side, but also pretty cool is we created a photojournalism exhibit called In Plain Sight that was at our local science center. It just came down. Ironically, it opened just before the pandemic started and then it stayed up until probably a few weeks ago. And it was about seven different women in uh, the STEM fields really showcasing their career and lives across a broad spectrum of inclusion areas from LGBTQ to Indigenous to people of color, um, just trying to show that women have been here in the technology fields for a while. And I originally wanted to call it, why can't you see us? But I was told that was mildly hostile. So <laughs> in plain sight was where we ended up. Because I, I do hear these conversations from people saying it's so great to see that women are finally joining the STEM fields. And I, I find that at best ironic. Well, that's a, actually a, a really good segue to my next question, which was going to be, whether you think women are engaging more in STEM fields than they might once have and or if you think it's just that people are more aware that they're out there. So the interesting thing about STEM fields is they are not uniform. So uh, the story of participation in chemistry and biology is very different than the story for most engineering fields, which is different from physics, which is different from computer science. So we've seen a huge growth in the uh, biological sciences, chemistry as well um, in the past 20, 30 years. Um, we saw, we've seen physics go up quite a bit. Engineering has been moving in a non-uniform way. Basically what we found is that if there is a more communal or obvious way that people can contribute to society and health, women are more likely to be interested. So chemical engineering, environmental engineering, biomedical engineering all have very high participation of women. Civil engineering is actually relatively high. Um, mechanical mining and computing are at the bottom. <laughs> uh, Leading back to my apps, sort of showing, you know, actually we are a bit more communal than people might think. Uh, I, I always joke that there's a stereotype of what computer people look like, and I'm not that. Uh, I don't really care for computer games, although I'm thrilled that other people do because they do keep me employed. But the idea of who you are, the stereotype of who you need to be to be in this job and to be successful and to be happy, um, that, that becomes a challenge. The term computer was used as a, for a person uh, before we had the physical machines. And 95% of computers, the people who did the hard math, were actually women. Then computers became machines. And originally, when they first were coming out, the programming was viewed as being a largely secretarial job. So they were, by and large, predominantly female. The people building them tended to be the quote, computer engineers and more male. And there was a very interesting thing that happened when personal computers were released. When they were released to the public as something you might bring into your home, they were sold as something that the boys might like to play with. And there was an unbelievably dramatic dip. So, I mean, predominantly women were computer scientists until probably the 50s or 60s. Then it became to about 30%, so still not terrible. And then it dropped down to about 11% right around the release of uh, personal computers. So it really does show you how powerful 
marketing can be to the psyche and the perception of how things are going to be used. And we've been trying to claw back from that. Computer scientists, uh, the average is normally around 18, 20%. So it's better than computer engineering, which we're very excited to say broke double digits recently. Um, <laughs> it's more around 11%. But that kind of gives you some ideas. But yeah, the, the spectrum and the participation in STEM is completely non-uniform. And this gets reflected in the technology that gets produced and the science that gets produced. And that's so interesting because you, you go back to women serving as computers, who, which were, who were basically, they were cal calculating machines. They were doing math, which is not what we're talking about in terms of engineering fields that have hum high human interaction components. So it's not that, it, it, you know, women may not be choosing those sort of number-focused careers in the numbers that, that men are, but obviously they have done in the past or, or they were, for whatever reason, they were selected to do those kinds of jobs in the past before we had machines to do it. Yeah. So what you would find is you would find these computing firms would often get paired with engineering firms and the engineers were men, but the computing problems were sent to the women. So it's an interesting uh, dichotomy of what perceived labor was. Uh, computer science I find quite fascinating because it really had such a strong participation of women and then it just got shut down. Um, the first computer program, Ada Lovelace. The first compiler, Grace Hopper. Uh, the termy of the coin bug was also Grace Hopper. Um, the person who first coined the term software engineer was also a woman and uh, she helped create the concept of interrupts, which if you're not really into techie stuff, maybe doesn't mean much, but trust me when I say that it's quintessential to our world of computers being everywhere. Uh, so, uh, Margaret Hamilton, I believe was her name. And then you have other people like the first graphics calculator. Uh, so really women have been unbelievably fundamentally involved in technology, but their contributions have been wiped out and just erased. In addition to, to marketing, what I always hear, and I, I really hate to say things that sound like they're, they're stereotypes, but what I always hear is that women may start out in technical fields, but may not stick for whatever reason, either because of something as negative as harassment or just that the, the society doesn't encourage them to continue to participate in, you know, math or physics or the hard sciences. I mean, does that does that ring true to you or am I totally wrong about that? Or, or what do you think are the things that keep women in technical fields and, and also the things that maybe keep them from staying? And so, again, it's a true statement, but I would focus it more because, again, STEM fields are not uniform. The, the, the uptake as well as the retention is not uniform. Um, so I'll give you an example I think something it's in Canada, I think it's something like 80% of people who get an engineering degree don't necessarily go on to practice traditional engineering, which is bizarre when you think about it. It's quite high. Um, they go on to be very successful and they do a lot of things that contribute to society, but maybe they don't just do it in the way you might traditionally expect. So women are going to be part of that as well. And I think that what you do find in engineering and computing is, I think in the first five years, it's one in five women leave computer uh, computing technology jobs compared to one in 10 men. And then because you had a smaller pipeline, that's uh, obviously a bigger loss. And I do think it's multiple things. So when I talk about equity, inclusion, and diversity, I talk with a lot of multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations and they're gung-ho for diversity. And they even see the point of inclusion, but they, they like, you'll see a lot of places that it's inclusion and diversity. They don't want to talk about equity, but realistically, and I mean, obviously this isn't, this is for any underrepresented group. If you don't provide an equity input, then how are they ever going to feel included? And why would they ever choose to stay to maintain your diversity? So even organizations um, 
in the computing world that say managed to recruit at a level of 30% women, which is phenomenal, you look at them two years later and, and very frequently they have lost the majority of that because the environment in which people have worked, and I'm not even talking the nightmare side of harassment because there are organizations like that that are really and truly dreadful. But there are other ones where maybe it's not that dreadful. It's just uncomfortable. And you spend a lot of time at work. And why would you spend a lot of time at a place that makes you uncomfortable? And then you see the flip side. And there are organizations who have really nailed this down and are really making efforts. And word of mouth is strong. Uh, Women network, whether it's in computing or any other field. And... These places act more as havens. They, they do better. They retain. They attract. And I think the rest are fighting for what's left. I would imagine that some of those dynamics are really different depending on the size of the organization and whether, for example, it's a big corporation versus a, a big university or a startup. I mean, I, I would imagine it would be really hard to draw conclusions or even create DEI policies that would effectively address the variety of different kinds of organizations that need women who have technology or, or science skills. Agreed. And I, I think um, I think that if you start if you are or if you start as a smaller organization, you have a lot of potential and opportunity to build this up in a more positive way. I think as you look at organizations that have existed for a while and now you're trying to potentially create a new value within that organization, that's a lot harder than a company that's got 10 or 20 people. And how are they going to adapt? Because if you've got 10,000 individuals working at your organization, equity is hard to do because equity is nuanced. Um, Equality is the one that is easy because it can be uniform. But that doesn't necessarily help. And I think this pandemic has really highlighted that. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Technology Untangled. You know, I love to find new podcasts. I'm getting ready for a vacation. And one of the things I like to pack before I travel, new podcasts. Hosted by Michael Bird, Technology Untangled is a show that deciphers tech's rapid evolution with one simple question in mind. What's really going to shape our future and what's going to end up in the bargain bin with the floppy disks? So I listened to an episode of Technology Untangled about quantum computing. I'm really interested in this topic and it's it's something I've learned about. But if you ask me to explain it, I think I'd have trouble doing that. And this episode not only got into the nitty gritty of how quantum computing works and what it's all about, but it did so without insulting my intelligence. I I felt like grownups were having a conversation and I was allowed to be at the table. So that was pretty cool. Past guests include folks from Google, Sainsbury's, Aston Martin, Red Bull Racing, Goon Hilly Earth Station, the New York Times, and Nokia. And to give you an idea of episode topics, you can expect a deep dive into 5G, which untangles the who's, what's, and why's, and how's of 5G and what it means to you. How supercomputers are helping us with the fight against COVID by sifting through billions of molecules to look for drugs to repurpose, along with AI and the future of jobs. Add episodes on energy innovation and Mission to Mars, and you're spoiled for choice. Search for Technology Untangled anywhere you listen to podcasts, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Technology Untangled for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Maybe it would be a good idea just to sort of quickly define diversity, equity, and inclusion, because they're not the same, and and I think people might not, people hear those words all together, but they don't necessarily think about what they mean individually. Yes. Okay. So, and I'm also going to throw in equality just to be um, complete in my definitions. I can't help it. Computer engineer, I need complete definitions. You'll have to excuse me <laughs> on that one. Um, so equality is providing everybody, if, and I tend to think of the things as an equation, as the, with the same inputs. Everybody gets the same opportunities, the same supports. And the problem with that is not everybody needs the same thing. 
there's a bunch of really good memes out there as to how that can be a problem. Um, I'm also going to note, because your listeners may be international, that in North America, we're very clear on the stickler that equality and equity are very different. But for example, if you go into the UK, um, their policies are focused on equality, even though the way they're terming the definition, it's actually closer to equity. Equity is about providing everybody with the inputs necessary for them to be able to achieve the same outputs. So um, what does that translate into? Um, Maybe it's more flexible working hours because somebody's a caregiver. Um, Maybe it's uh, disability related whether it's the work environment they need um, or technology they need or ergonomics or whatever. Um, But providing them with a structure that doesn't have to replicate everybody else's structure because the structure they need is not the same. Inclusion is about the idea that everyone feels that they are welcome in that space So if you talk in terms of social psychology, you talk in terms of social identities, which means I view myself in different ways in different situations. I might view myself as a musician in some contexts, a computer engineer, a professor, a woman, um, a Yankees fan. That's probably going to cause some ruffles somewhere. Uh, Canadian. What, but whatever the context, it, certain social identities will be highlighted. So if I am in a safe, open, inclusive work environment, no matter what social identities I have and I embrace inside that space, I feel equally valued and, and wanted and respected and understood and empowered to achieve. Diversity is the outside looking in. So in Equity and inclusion are about me. Diversity is about if I look at an organization, what do I see? I see a sea of people. Do they all look the same? So hopefully those are pretty good definitions to have this conversation. Yeah, that's it's helpful because I I think in the tenant, you know, we all acronyms get to be sort of they roll off your tongue and not everybody understands them the same way. I've also heard DEAI. So the A being accessibility. So that gets to what you were talking about in terms of equity, equity, probably a broader term, which can include accessibility. But some people specify that to include things like accommodations for people with disability or, or some other kind of change to the environment, the built environment that might be needed. Yes. And so um, I think part of the reason sometimes they do that is there are more legal protections for accessibility than there are for some other equity issues. I'm not saying there are enough protections. I'm right. saying that right now there are pretty much no protections for equity <laughs> issues. <laughs> well, and, and the, they tend to be really specific because they'll say you have to make what's in what's called in the in the USADA reasonable accommodations and I I don't know what the the Canadian counterpoint to that might be but there are specifics in law that you know sometimes companies just want you to point them to the legal points and say all right well this is how much we have to do this is exactly how much we're going to do maybe they'll do more but probably not <laughs> in some cases yeah so I, I mean there's definitely a Canadian counterpoint to that but uh, yeah these things definitely become challenges because then there's also for an accessibility perspective so if you've had a spinal injury in a car for example that has not left you uh, as a paraplegic so thank goodness for you but it is severe damage that maybe doesn't let you sit in a cubicle as if you were paraplegic there are potentially more ergonomic requirements than if you are uh, someone with a bad back and like I'm, I'm not trying to equate the two situations because there is well and, and one no might equation. be temporary and one might be permanent too so you might have different legal obligations as well as just different ways of 
addressing the situation based on whether they're temporary or permanent, that sort of thing. Well, but I mean, they could both be permanent. And yes, the thing yes, is that even if they are both permanent, um, the the expectations of the law and the equity expectations vary. And there's also how people perceive your need. And, and I... I mean, I, I mean, you can put that to all the things, all the types of, uh, issues like chronic pain. Um, I mean, there's so many things that are invisible challenges from the outside looking in ADHD. I mean, their depression, anxiety, like, you know, if I, if I have a cast, people know what my problem is. If I don't, <laughs> then they might assume that there's no challenge and the law might not protect me nearly as well, which, which is bad for everybody. That's, I guess where I'm going with all this. <laughs> and, and I, and, and I really want to be clear in saying that I don't think the law protects the accessibility issues nearly well enough. And I actually think there's a huge responsibility on educators and industry to do something that's called universal design. And I don't know if that's a term that you talk about on your show. Not enough. It, it's a term that a lot of people have started to use it to basically go beyond the notion of accessibility to address uh, the limitations of technology from the point of view of a, from disability. And so when I hear universal design, and tell me if this is a good way to to refer to it, because this is just what I hear, people basically say, I'm not about accessibility of technology. I'm not about just creating a screen reader or, or some sort of tool that provides magnification. I'm about universal design that makes it possible for everyone to use technology in the way that is easiest for them. That, that's, a, that's a pretty good definition. Um, I might go slightly further in saying that the solutions we design should be usable by everybody. So the, the easy one I tend to use is going into a building if you use stairs versus a ramp. A ramp right. is a universal solution compared to a set of stairs. So, and it, but I mean, it translates. It translates into software design. Um, there are an alarming number of people who have colorblindness, so what color spectrums are we using for the visualization of information? Not just, and I mean, obviously, legally blind, sizing of text, the ability to resize, the ability to retune audio. So the, the dimensions are huge. Um, and they become very challenging in places where you start talking about machine learning and AI, which basically are set up to recognize the common, the normal, the majority, which automatically penalizes the underrepresented, <laughs> which is why in my mind, it's so important to get the underrepresented in technology because we've seen example after example of, after example of them being ignored and the impact of them being ignored. I appreciate your saying that because interestingly, AI has both been used recently to enhance accessibility in terms of describing an environment to somebody who can't see it, for example, and then also to uh, make ex make things less accessible by saying, all right, instead of having a human, make sure that this website is accessible under the guidelines that exist. We're going to have AI run over it and we're going to have it completely rewrite the website in a way that we think is accessible, but that's actually going to break it for the actual user. So, so AI is a really interesting, huge topic from, in terms of accessibility. Oh yeah, it, it is. But I mean, it, it, to me, it's so much more than that. I mean, it's AI, but, um, drug design in the nineties, eight out of 10 drugs were pulled off the shelves because of their impact on women, because the way they did drug testing was, well, we'll test it on male mice and then, you know, women just have some extra stuff, but we're not going to worry too much about that. <laughs> then we'll test it on people and, well, women just tend to be lighter people than male people. And, and we're surprised that that many <sighs> women, drugs were pulled because of the impact on women. Uh, car seatbelts, when cars were first released, the, the safety industry that was going to be in charge of them said, well, you should have a dummy that was 
a man, a dummy that was a woman, and a dummy that was a kid. And the car industry fought back and said, no, 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 that's way too much work. We'll just do an average size male and we can extrapolate. Well, what that translates into is, I mean, it took a long time to figure out, but seatbelts killing kids, not to mention airbags and everything else. But even in modern cars, a seatbelt is not designed properly for a female anatomy. Women are 30%, I think, more likely to get severely injured in a car accident because of the design of a seatbelt. It is, it is universal. It, it's, it, it's, uh, we don't ha you don't have a voice and it has impact. Uh, I mean, it's from everything we are purchasing power, quote, the pink tax. We're going to pay more to get our hair cut, our, our clothes laundered, buying razors, underarm deodorant. We're going to have uh, software image and voice recognition not work as well for us and for other underrepresented groups. And what I find fascinating is underrepresented doesn't mean minority. I don't know the exact statistics for the U.S., but I would expect they would be similar to Canada. But straight white men wake up about 35% of our population. So 65% of the population is the underrepresented, the rest right. of us. And so revisiting this idea as... We're not asking for permission to be helped. We're asking for the space we deserve at the table. And, and fixing that, I guess, starts with representation in, in fields like technology or any field where that touches universal design. But I, I assume you would have to go further than that. It's not just enough to say, all right, well, we have a woman on our engineering team. Are you happy now? I mean, what's, what, are, <laughs> what are the next steps? <laughs> Well, and it's interesting because, um, for example, some car companies have had female design teams and the value adds they've added to the car have been extremely important, uh, including uh, easy connection points for car seats, safety lighting. So it's not even that, that they have added value into the car. It's just a different kind of value. Um, but yeah, just adding a woman to the team, it's like, yes, I, I feel so privileged to be the one woman who's now going to have to speak on behalf of all women. And it, it's a stress, it's, that's part of the reason people step down. It's a stressful space to be in. Asking the underrepresented to advocate for themselves. I mean, it's good to give them the space to say, you're forgetting about me and people like me, but making it their job to change everything for everybody else is highly stressful. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a realistic goal. Um, one of the things that we really have been trying to do, so one of the things I was very big on redesigning our computer engineering curriculum to look at more inclusive teaching practices was to really get people into the concept of what's called a growth mindset. Because if you, uh, if, you ever, if you have the chance to read uh, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, it's quite lovely. Um, if you believe you have certain innate skills that cannot be changed, then that's a real problem when you're underrepresented because you don't see anyone looking like you. So I guess the people like you don't have those skills compared to if you are of a growth mindset belief where you believe that you start somewhere and you continue to work at it and you're going to get somewhere else, then the fact that you don't see people helps. I mean, sorry, that, that came up backwards. It doesn't help that you don't see people. It helps that you have that belief system. So the fact that you don't see people is not as much of a limitation. Obviously, having people that look like you, whatever that is, is huge. And we tend to feel comfortable in our identities when we see about 30% of the people looking like us. Well, that goes back to what you were saying about people having to advocate for the underrepresented and how, how underrepresented and how stressful that is. Because I know as somebody who's had to do that in my own life, there's this sort of implicit belief or unsaid thing that, okay, we're going to listen to you and then we're going to be done and we can check this off. We're done and we can go on about what we were doing 
before. And it sounds like part of what you're saying with the growth mindset is you don't, you're not looking to check something off and be done. You're looking to continually innovate based on all the inputs you get from a wide, diverse group of people. Yes. So yeah, you're talking about two different sides. So one is when you go to somebody and say, look, this is happening. The problem inherently, if you're saying it about yourself, is that you feel a certain amount of judgment. They're going to sit there and evaluate your feelings and your assessment, and then they're going to credit it or discredit it against you. And ideally, hopefully they're crediting it to you and empowering you, but that's a stressful situation to be in. And there's suggestions in research that imply that if you are in this underrepresented space and continually having to self-advocate in a, a stressful way, it's actually impacting the longevity of your life. So it's, it's real. The, the growth mindset part is powerful for everyone, but where it becomes really useful for underrepresented groups is getting over the hump of trying these new things, going into these spaces where you're worried about being included because you perceive stereotypes like girls can't do math, but my, it's my personal vendetta most hated one. <laughs> I don't know how you can go from being the people responsible for computing all the difficult equations to being not able to do math, but wherever, whoever I get to thank for that one, um, it, it's a hugely powerful stereotype and telling girls before they do a math test that, you know, well, girls aren't good at math actually negatively impacts their performance by a lot because they accept that view from outside individuals they considered who have authority. Whereas if you are somebody, it's like, okay, well, you know, you got a 70 on this test. You got a C. That's not great. But if you're of the growth mindset, then it's like, I've got work to do. If I put in the time, if I get some help, this C is going to change as opposed to, well, the C is what I got and that's the best I can do. And that change is part of how we get more individuals into STEM fields who feel underrepresented because when they don't see people like themselves and they believe that this is all they are capable of, then we're losing so very much. I'd love to talk did about. That kind of, yeah. I was going to say, did that kind of cover where where you were going? Oh no, it it, it totally did. I mean, I and I, I appreciate your sort of making some clarity out of what what I was saying because both of those resonate with me. They absolutely do. I, I t- totally get where you're where you're going with that. I sadly believe that pretty much every underrepresented individual has both had to self advocate in a stressful situation and. If they are willing to continue to compete in these underrepresented spaces, accept that, okay, uh, not achieving my best, I, I can do better and I will do better. I think if, if you cannot move into this growth mindset space, I think that it is very hard for underrepresented individuals to feel confident and successful. And that seems like for a lot of people that... that underscores the value of of mentorship or coaching or some sort of support system that makes it possible for you to maintain that because that's a heavy lift if you are if you're already feeling underrepresented or burdened by a, a system that you're not an in, inherent part of yes and actually mentorship and coaching are great but what we really need is more sponsorship so I'm going to differentiate between the two and say mentorship, you work with a mentor to try and understand yourself and move yourself forward, but there's no advocacy there. And I'm not saying that they're trying to prohibit your growth. They're there working with you on growth together. Whereas a, a sponsor's focus is identifying you and going, I see you, I see your capabilities and I see your potential. And I'm going to use my own personal social credit to advocate for you in opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. And again, underrepresented people, actually, it's quite interesting. Underrepresented people are generally relatively highly mentored, but they're not sponsored. That's a really interesting difference. It sounds like 
something that's tailor-made for when you go into an organization and they say, how can we actually do better on these metrics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and equality? And one of the answers is sponsor the people that you bring in. Don't just assign them a mentor that will help them in their early career, but have somebody who, who's essentially their champion and who can not only guide them, but actually advocate for them. It's interesting you say that. I've actually been talking with a couple organizations about how to set up sponsorship programs for underrepresented groups, because one of the things is the networking aspect. Um, how easy is it for them to connect with executive C-suite above sort of there's there's kind of especially for women there sort of is a bit of a glass ceiling that you know you you see women into roles of say middle managers but then as you keep going up there's there's the ceiling of that the percentages don't move as as well as they should so how do you how do you break through that how do you create that visibility I'd love to talk about intersectionality. So many, many women are also members of other groups, whether they be people of color, indigenous people, LGBTQ, uh, people with disabilities. And I, I don't want to put it just in negative terms in terms of it making more making it more complex to succeed, whether it be in STEM education or in, in STEM careers. But I, I guess I'm wondering what, what you would say about how intersectionality plays into what, what you would like to see happen for, for women in, in technology field. So I think intersectionality is, a, I mean, it's very much a timely conversation. Um, it kind of comes back a little bit to some of those social identity comments I made earlier, that now instead of maybe having one social identity as a trigger... You have multiple social identities that can be a trigger for uh, feeling excluded. So obviously for that individual, it can make anything and everything harder. Um, so there are definitely, it's, it's one of those, I always believe it's very important to say to people, this is not in your head. This is real. <laughs> you are... <laughs> You really are struggling up the mountain and you're trying to carry some, a group of people with you because in my mind, one of the things that I like working for West, my theory is that women are about 50% of that 65% majority I talked about. And if I'm doing my job right, I believe that because we are such a loud voice at 50%, we should be opening the door for ourselves and everybody else in our situation and in complementary or related exclusionary situations. Because obviously there are situations that uh, will go a generic woman may not relate to. And uh, especially, for example, if I, if, I, if I kind of segregate gender, um, a non-binary person may be based trying to suffer through and work through so so it, it is real and it, it does take I shouldn't say it does it realistically can take a toll on person and the the when I say can the hope is that they're in an environment that supports them and, and I mean that's the dream I have but I'm also realistic enough to know that it may or not may or may not actually be the reality but in my dream, they are supported because they deserve it and they should be. And if, if they are, then their value to an organization and not just an organization, but to society is so fundamentally huge because it's not, they offer such a rich experience. They see the world differently. I mean, we all see the world differently. And it's so important to have as many of those viewpoints as possible because when I design a product, I, I want to know that it's not injurious to one group of people, but I couldn't possibly know that given my own life experience. Um, there's been some very interesting conversations. I think there was an article in the Harvard Review talking about black women and technology and some of the issues that they find challenging. And I mean, 
basically, how do you feel included? How do you feel safe? I, I there's a whole depth of experience that I, of which I'm unaware. Um, part of this article talked about black women's hair, which I think is beautiful. And it never even occurred to me that somebody might be judging them based on their hair. It's like, well, other than thinking it's beautiful, what would your judgment be? <laughs> but this concept of stereotypes of professionalism and things like that and how it makes someone feel. So, so yes, my ignorance means that I don't advocate until I, I find, I, I learn about it. And it's on, it's got to be on me to learn about it. Because it's back to that whole thing, expecting the equity deserving individuals to do all the work is just another job they're not getting paid for. Well, I think a lot about allyship in the sense that I might, there might be a black queer woman who, who has a disability, there might be a white straight woman who, well, there might be whatever combination of identities people have, your organization might, you, you might be the only one or one of a small number in your organization that have a similar identity. You know, there might not be four black women who can be together and who can sponsor one another and be, you know, say, I, I have that experience in common with you. But as one of their white colleagues or as a queer colleague or as a person with a disability who happens to be their colleague who understands some of what's going on in terms of their underrepresentation, if not their actual experience, it's important for me to find a way to be an ally that's effective and that doesn't get in their way. I mean, there, there's, because I don't, I, I would not want, and this, I thought about this a lot last year when so many people were talking about racial ju racial justice. And it occurred to me that as, as a white cis woman, I wanted to be an ally, but I didn't want to do it in a way that was going to get in the way of people who were actually doing the work of trying to get more racial justice. And that has to apply to education and careers as well. I, I think, yeah, you're hitting on that point. So it kind of comes back to what I hope my organization is able to do, that um, we can be a voice not just for white women. We, and frankly, not just for women, because uh, all Indigenous people need our... Uh, I don't know how much you know about what's going on in Canada right now, but... Uh, that community is understandably hurting. Uh, I can't fathom what they're going through. I, as a white woman, I am horrified uh, and upset and l angry. And it's not my community that lost all those children. <laughs> and I, it doesn't, I mean, as, yeah, just, I, I can't fathom. So, I mean, all I can do is do the things that have been asked of me as easily and as quickly as possible and provide the support that I can and try and be a voice that when I make an ask for something. So um, this to me talks about universal hiring practices, universal negotiation, because we talk about universal design, but I think that we have to go a little bit farther. If, if I'm going to be part of a union um, the asks that I make for on behalf of the majority of my members, do they penalize unintentionally some of my members? I don't think making those asks is a fair way to go. I, I don't think we should be putting in additional barriers or maybe not additional barriers, but just failing to recognize the needs of the minority just because they don't represent the majority. Because at some point it becomes a systemic barrier for wanting, someone wanting to participate in that. And, and sometimes it's a matter of, of learning, too, because I may not know what my, my colleague or somebody that I know who's in another underrepresented group, I may not know what that person needs. So it's about listening to them and figuring out what the best way for me to, to help or, as I say, not get in their way. Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you an example that I, I still find shocking. Uh, when I joined SFU, uh, birth control was not covered by our health plan. 
but Viagra was. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were coming up on a negotiation and said, anybody said, so is there anything that we should be asked for? It's like, yeah, birth control. It's, you know, I, I, I did start working after 2000. I may be not the youngest individual on the block, but I think after 2000, it's a shocking idea that birth control is not covered is, by the yeah. health plan. And I actually had multiple people email me, all men, not shocking, um, who you know said, well, why should we be giving up money for things we don't need? And you know, why are you expecting us to have this kind of coverage? And I'm, I was just floored because it's like, you already pay for coverage of a lot of drugs you don't take. Why is this the one that you're upset right. about? <laughs> but it, 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 it's, it's anyway, it, it is just one of these conversations that um, I, I do think intersectional challenges um, are huge. But I also think that this ties back into opportunities for universal design, for thinking about our hiring practices Um, I've put a lot of time looking at how we do hiring and promotion and advertising to get diverse pools because you have to make people understand that they're welcome. And I mean, a a standard job advert with the, I call it the don't sue me boilerplate, which effectively is the, you know, we are we follow the law and are bound to uh, provide interviewing and consideration of all uh, candidates of special consideration, whoever they are identified to be in whatever country you're in. And it's like, well, thank you. I, I understand you don't want to get sued, but that doesn't actually <laughs> tell me that you're doing anything to make sure that I'm going to be treated well or be included right. when I show up at your door. So recognizing where people are at and making asks that are reasonable. Uh, Another big one in terms of job adverts is, and this is something men do right, I give them credit, they'll apply for jobs with 60% of the qualifications and women apply with 100 (laughs) on, again, on average. Yeah. But men are doing this right because this is how you jump levels. The question you should be asking yourself is, do I want to do the job? And am I qualified to do, if I'm, do I think I can do the job? And maybe I don't have all the qualifications, but I can grow them. So writing a job advert that reflects the fact that you never actually hire somebody who has all the qualifications that you're asking for. So you might as well write one that reflects what you're really thinking. A related question, this just occurred to me. I know that in a lot of technical fields, particularly things like computer science, I would assume engineering, uh, a lot of employers screen people via, uh, obviously they, they run resumes through boilerplate, through machines, you know, and they determine which people they want to interview on that basis. And then once they get people in, they put them through batteries of, of tests. And I'm wondering what you have to say about the ways people are, are screened for jobs and how that can impact their, uh, the likelihood that somebody from an underrepresented group will actually get hired? So it's actually pretty interesting. So um, there was a study that found if you were interviewing four candidates and one of them was female, you were, the probability of hiring the woman was 0% statistically, oh, wow. obviously. You did, there are, were some cases of sure. them being hired, but that just was sort of an ironic statistic. Um, so there is, and I mean, you can do similar things for other underrepresented groups. I'm sure I would be shocked if the statistic, uh, statistical approach didn't hold. So there are things you actually can do to improve the hiring process to, uh, basically blind your candidates to people at the early low levels of, um, consideration, uh, companies often have people do code submissions um, and how they're evaluating, uh, coding tests has changed dramatically in com- organizations that are interested in being inclusive because, uh, coding was getting, people were being evaluated as not being good coders for not doing it the same way as the person who would have written it themselves. St- uh, 
sociologically, people think that they're very good, so they generally tend to be driven to hire themselves when, in fact, they should be driven to hire somebody who's not like themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's hard because if you think you're good at your job, then, you know, you tend to want to hire yourself. Um, so there, there are processes absolutely that for the sort of the to create a, a pool at sort of the second to last or last pool that is more diverse that kind of pulls some of these biases out of that and realistically with implicit bias um, the big thing is recognizing that you see the world a certain way and really trying to get to the root of what you really need and what you really want and not what you like necessarily <laughs> in some cases because often what you like is yourself. And uh, as somebody who works in the uh, writing journalism field, I, I can tell you that that happens in our world too. So we give people editing tests and I, I it's just, it's, it's human nature. That doesn't mean it's right, but it's human nature for me to look at somebody who edits the way I do and go, oh, that person is good. They're doing it right. I'll hire them. And that's, that's mm -hmm. worth a second look. Yeah, um, it's, it, it is... I mean, if you realistically, it, it's kind of intuitive. I mean, part of it, it's your own personal bias on these things, but it's also intuitive that if you didn't like what you were doing, you would change it. Right. So right. obviously <laughs> you like what you're doing. Sure. <laughs> well, let me ask you, you one last question. As it happens, I have, I have twin nieces and they've just graduated high school and they're both going into to STEM-related fields. Uh, one will be majoring in engineering. She hasn't decided which kind of engineering. Apparently, they have a base, which seems like a good idea, but apparently, as freshmen, they, they start taking their classes, and they don't have to decide which branch of engineering to go into until a year or so out in. So she hasn't made that choice. And my other niece is going to be pre-med with the goal of being a physician's assistant. And obviously, you don't know these young women, uh, but I guess I, I would wonder, just as a general matter, as somebody who's interested in seeing women succeed in, in STEM careers, uh, any any pieces of advice you might offer them as they, they move forward into their college lives? Absolutely. Um, I, I would Advice I will definitely offer them, but I would say that the advice is a bit more universal. Um, so if, if any of your listeners are not your nieces, but also going into <laughs> STEM fields, I think it will apply. Nobody knows it all, not your professors, not the students sitting very confidently beside you in the classroom. They're there to learn. Even the professors are there to learn. I mean, realistically, that's my job. My job is to help create individuals with high capacity of knowledge and to learn more stuff to help improve society. So since everybody's goal is to learn, then Go in expecting that you're going to have to ask questions. Uh, you are paying that professor and you are paying your TAs to help you get through this material. So I'm shocked at how few people ever show up to my office hours. I'm shocked at how few people show up to my TA's office hours. The, the people who ask the most questions are not... I haven't met a professor who's ever said, wow, these are the stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember in graduate school being in a class of 45 people and being the only person for the entire semester that asked a questions. And I asked a lot of them. And the professor saying to me afterwards, don't worry. I know that none of the rest of them are asking either, but they don't understand. <laughs> so I, I would say... That's a big one. And second thing is to just stay on top of what's coming at you because you're, you're in control of your learning now. Uh, when you're in high school, the answer is, and the goals are very controlled by your teachers. In university, we're trying to teach you how to learn. So we create frameworks and expect you to take responsibility for it. So the more effort you put in up front, the easier your final exams are. <laughs> They're the, and, if, and realistically, you're, the easiest grades that you ever get awarded are the ones you get early on in the term. So uh, if, if you do really well on things along the way, then the final exam is 
not so stressful. And that doesn't mean that you can't bomb a midterm or anything else. And what you should take away from messing up a midterm or anything else is that I need more help. I need work to work on this. So find a study buddy, find somebody who's good at that and you're good at something else and make the trade. But yeah, realistically, I think these fields are basically about putting in the time and putting in the work to learn and being willing to ask the questions and accept that I need help. Let me tell you about another show on Relay FM, Material. Hosts Andy Anotko and Florence Ion are veteran technology journalists with plenty to say about what's going on at Google. Follow Google's journey with them at relay.fm slash material or search for material wherever you get your podcasts. That's great advice. I will I will totally pass that along to them. And the, the great thing about these kids, of course, they're my nieces and I'm proud of them and I'm biased, is that I think they can hear that, like each in their own way because their personalities are very different. But they they're not taking these majors because it's easy. They they want to do something great with their lives and, and I'm excited for them for that reason. Well, and I say this from personal experience. So I'm a professor of computer engineering who didn't know what a prompt was when I started. <laughs> so if I can go from not understanding, like I didn't program, I didn't play computer games. I was pretty much a Luddite. If I can go from being a Luddite to being someone who can design a compiler and create a computer chip, then I thoroughly believe anybody can get through pretty much most classes. I promise you will like the class, but I promise (laughs) you can probably get through it. It really is about the work that you put in. That's a great note to to end it on. Dr. Leslie Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on Parallel. Tell folks where they can learn more about the West Coast Women in Engineering, Science, and Technology. Absolutely. So the WEST program, the easiest way to learn about us is to go to wwest.ca. Awesome. That's simple. If you want to follow this podcast, you can go to relay.fm slash parallel and subscribe. You can follow the show at Parallel Pods on Twitter or ping me at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and send along those guest suggestions or feedback on the show. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye for now.